Welcome back, listeners, to the newest bonus edition of Sports Invaders Plus. I'm your host, Sam Peebles. If you want to hear more from me, you can check out Braves Dugout Podcast, but I'll be stopping in this month to talk more about MLB. It's always a blast to talk about baseball. Of course, I host Braves Dugout Podcast, which is typically mostly Braves, but... I am a baseball fan first, a Braves fan second. I follow all MLB, and I do my best to get the best updates on all the statistics and everything that goes behind it. I'm a huge stats guy. I'm a stat head, very analytical, and I like to think of myself as an analyst, and I do my best to give you guys the most accurate information with no bias whatsoever. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, there's no better time to talk about the four remaining MLB teams in the NLCS and the ALCS. We can break down who we think is going to win. We can talk about how they got there. Why is it possible that the Braves and the Red Sox got to where they are? Things like that. And then we'll talk about who I think is going to win and who I think should win the National League and the American League Most Valuable Player. Because... The debate there is pretty decent this year, and so it'll be fun to talk about. So if you guys listened to the last episode that we did in September, I'd hit heavily on how not all schedules are created equal, and I seemed to pick on the Brewers a lot because they had a very good record at the end of the season, especially during that time, and everyone was picking the Brewers heavily. I can't say everyone. Most people were heavily picking the Brewers to just basically not give the Braves a chance. And as we can see, and as I pointed out, that just wasn't the case. The Braves had been playing better baseball in the second half. They had improved steadily, whereas the Brewers had stayed the same. The Braves were hot, winning a ton of games at the end of the season. The Brewers had lost a ton of games. They were 1-10 1-10 in, in their last 11 against teams over 500. I mean, everything was leaning towards the Braves should be happy to play the Brewers because they had a legitimate chance of beating them statistically. And one thing that they were also really good at was the Brewers were 29th in the league in batting average when it came to hitting the curveball. They were 25th in the league when it came to slugging percentage and 25th in the league when it came to expected weighted on base average. Well, the Braves' two best pitchers pitch the curveball heavily. The league average of curveball throwing is about 30% of the time, where Max Fried throws the curveball 47% of the time, and Charlie Morton pitches it in the high 30%. So I knew that the Braves had a high probability of beating the Brewers, and so I'm just going to take this few seconds to say, hey, I told you so. But anyways, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of confidence that I do spend a ton of time doing this research and I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere just to make a podcast. I enjoy this. This is a hobby for me digging into the statistics. So I figured, hey, this is my way to give back to the baseball world because the baseball world has done so much for me. So here's my chance to give back to all of you to take all the research that I've spent, which I promise is more than 99% of you, and give it to you so you can listen to it. And I hope you enjoy this. So let's continue on this track of not all schedules are created equally, and we can kind of look at how is it that these teams made it to the ALCS after all, and the NLCS, obviously. 
After all, the Boston Red Sox are the wild card team, and they beat the mighty Rays, which, to be honest with you, I was hoping the Rays would make it, even though I didn't think they were as good this year as they were last year, just because it's always fun to see a small market team beat up on big market teams. If you're a Red Sox fan, I apologize. I am hoping for the Red Sox to, to face the Braves in the World Series. I think of the four remaining teams, that would be the most fun outcome. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think many people want to see a Houston Astros, Los Angeles Dodgers World Series. Will I watch it? Sure. Do I want that matchup? No, I don't. But that's okay. I mean, they've still got some exciting players on both teams. The Dodgers, I actually like the Dodgers better this year as far as their roster, who's on their roster. Uh, Not necessarily that I think they're a better team, but I just have enjoyed the players on their team better this year than I have last year. Being a Braves guy i've seen a ton of max scherzer and trey turner and they absolutely demolished the braves so uh, i really enjoy watching them play and uh i know that they're they're fantastic players not only by with the good old eye test which let me say right off the bat that when people start saying that they're using the eye test that means typically means they don't know what they're talking about statistically but what i'm getting at is trey turner and max scherzer have amazing statistics they have amazing peripherals and they're aesthetically pleasing to watch play the game but anyways i i don't think that those would be that would be the ideal matchup in the world series but i mean i'm still gonna watch it but it, it's as you can see though the red sox they beat the Rays, and they beat the yankees in the wild card game and now they're in the alcs the Braves had the worst record of the three division winners, and the two wild card game teams had a better record than the Braves did. But Major League Baseball is the longest season of any sport, 162 games, a lot can happen. The same team that you saw for the Braves and the Red Sox at the beginning of the year is not the same team that you see now. Both teams have cut out the fat in the bullpen. That's a big thing for Major League Baseball teams. They go in and they figure out, okay, how do we fix this bullpen mix to maximize our best bullpen? I mean, the Braves went through like literally 15 different guys this year before they figured out who they're going to have on their postseason roster. The Red Sox did the same thing. The Dodgers did it even more. But that's one of the things that they've done. And if you look, the one thing you want to look at is... How do teams progress throughout the season? And the Braves did that, the Red Sox did that, and they got better. For example, the Brewers did have an excellent pitching staff. They gave up 3.84 runs a game for the entire season, but in the second half, they gave up 3.81 runs. If you look at the math, I mean, the difference is 0.03. It's almost exactly the same across the entire year. Whereas the Braves, for the whole season, gave up 4.07 runs a game. But for the second half of the season, they got way better with 3.54. So as you can see, the Brewers kind of stayed stagnant with their pitching. And the Braves got way better, so much so that their pitching ended up being better during the second half than the Brewers, even though everyone was talking about how good the Brewers pitching staff was, rightfully so. But you can't just look at a whole season and say, hey, look at these statistics. Yeah, the Brewers have scored, you know, so many runs and and given up less runs 
That's true, but they did give up less runs than the Braves, but they scored way less runs than the Braves. Actually, the Brewers had a much worse run differential than the Braves did. But I'm going off on a tangent here. What I'm getting at is you need to look at the second half, and whenever you hear people say, oh, teams got hot at the right time, and that's why making the playoffs, well, it's not just a matter of getting hot. Like, they're performing as well. You, you look at how they've done the past I like to go ever since. My favorite thing to look at is since the trade deadline, especially for competitive teams, because every team that is competitive, or I can't say every team, most teams that want to compete, they upgrade at the deadline. So their team is different. They lost players to injury. They got their bullpen better. They've weeded out the bad bullpen pieces. They've trimmed the fat. They have gotten better with trade upgrades and waiver pickups. So the teams that you see on game 162 is drastically different than the team you see game one. And the Dodgers are a good example of that too. They don't have Trevor Bauer anymore, but they replaced him with Max Scherzer. They don't have Clayton Kershaw for the postseason. They had to figure out what to do with that. And just like last night, they ran a bullpen game. And they have such a deep bullpen that that's okay to do. I was actually, a lot of Braves fans across social media was like, well, this is a must-win game because the Braves should win this one. I'm like, no, it's not necessarily because the Dodgers have such a deep bullpen that that might be a bad thing for the Braves. Luckily, the Braves, as a Braves fan, the Braves end up winning 3-2. to two. But the thing is, is though that Dodgers did what good teams do and they figured out what bullpen pieces are right for their squad and the, on the just for example, I've talked about ERA plus before. ERA plus is if you have an ERA plus of 100, that means you're exactly league average at preventing runs. The Dodgers have five guys on their postseason roster for their bullpen with a, at least a 144 ERA plus, but most of them higher than that. Five guys that are at least 44% better than league average at preventing runs. The Braves only have three. Yet the Braves had the third best bullpen in the National League in the second half. So, I mean, it the Dodgers knew what to do. They made their bullpen better. The Braves did the same thing. They got rid of the guys. I mean, shoot, the guy that they traded for at the trade deadline, Richard Rodriguez, they traded a few years of Bryce Wilson, a starting pitcher for him, and he didn't even make the roster because he wasn't performing down the stretch. Uh, I have talked about in the past in my articles for Tomahawk Take and Sports Talks ATL. Richard Rodriguez was obviously using some type of sticky stuff as his rotation of this fastball drastically dropped, and his expected ERA and everything dropped like dropped like crazy after that memo went out. But hey, that's a whole different story for a different day. Same with Chris Martin for the Braves. Same for many guys across the league. But either way, that's a story for a different day. Let's talk about these teams and how they match up. How about that? As we know, these teams that got here is because not necessarily their record is telling the entire story. They got better as time went on. They were good matchups against the teams they faced. And guys performed at the right time. I mean, Kiki Hernandez has been absolutely insane this offseason. But let's look at these teams and see how they match up. Since we were talking about the Braves and the Dodgers, why don't we look at them real quick? Before we move on, though, I know that I host Braves Dugout Podcast. I want you to know that on paper, Dodgers are a better team. So I'm just going to give you some statistics because I think they're fun. 
And I want you to know that I, all I'm getting at is I believe that the Dodgers are a better team. But as we saw last night, they're not going to sweep the Braves. And I do think that the Braves do have a fighting chance because of a few things. This goes back to looking at the overall record and people not giving teams a chance because certain teams have a better record. I think on paper, Dodgers are the most complete team in Major League Baseball next to probably the Astros, if we're being honest, of the four remaining teams. The Astros are like one of the best offensive teams in the second half, and their pitching staff is solid. But what I'm getting at is I'm just going to give you some statistics that I think it's fun to show you that the Dodgers, yes, they are better overall on paper, but the Braves, they do have a fighting chance, and I'm going to give you some statistics to show you. So one thing you want to look at when you have two different teams facing each other in the playoffs is that, like we talked about, not all schedules are created the same well, regular season and postseason are not the same because when you have a team that is – there's a difference between a team that's built for the regular season and a team that's built for the postseason. As we saw years ago with the Nationals, they didn't even win their division, but they won the postseason, the World Series, because they were perfectly set up for a World Series run because you don't need five excellent starting pitchers in the postseason. If you get three guys – that are top of the line, they you can compete with anybody because you're going to prevent the other team from scoring runs and give your team a fighting chance. Because in the regular season, teams normally run out a five to six man rotation. And what I mean by that is that you're going to have your five regulars and then every once in a while they're either going to do a bullpen game to give the guys some time to rest or they'll throw out a spot starter. The Braves used to do that with Sean Newcomb. Uh, the Dodgers do that all the time. Uh, the Rays do the opener thing. They kind of started that, and, and more analytical teams like the Dodgers have started doing that as well, and it looks like the Braves are starting to do that. The Red Sox have done that as well. Um, so what I'm getting at is what you need to look at is when you're looking at teams and how they match up, you don't want to look at guys like their fifth starter, or you don't want to be like, well, you know, the Dodgers, David Price, blah, blah, blah. David Price is going to be a bullpen piece. He's not going to be a starter. Uh, the, he had some starts this year. They used him as kind of a spot start. They're not or a fifth starter. They're not going to use him as a top three guy. The Dodgers are obviously going to run out Scherzer, Urias, and Walker Bueller. Just like the Braves are obviously going to run out Max Fried, Ian Anderson, and Charlie Morton. So when you match the teams up and say, well, how are these teams going to do against each other? You got to look at those three pitchers as their starting pitchers and the other guys as relief pitchers. So. Let's look at the Dodgers and the Braves and see how they matched up. So the Dodgers were 1-2 and two against the Braves in the first half. But remember, teams are completely different in the first half. Where the Braves scored 15 runs and the Dodgers scored 16. Charlie, and let's look at the three pitchers that I'm talking about during that time frame. Charlie Morton pitched five innings and gave up two earned runs. Julio Urias pitched five innings, gave up one run. Ian Anderson pitched four and a third innings and gave up four earned runs. That was one of his worst outings of the year. Max Fried pitched six innings and only gave up one run. Max Scherzer was not on the Dodgers at this time. Obviously, he was on the Nationals, but he pitched against the Braves in the first half and pitched six innings and gave up four earned runs. Now, this was in Atlanta, okay, which is odd because... 
Ian Anderson pitches way better at home than he does away. He has serious bad splits at away versus at home. And uh, I think it was a really smart move for the Braves to go with him as starting game two so that he could pitch at home and it gives him an option to start him at home again later down the series if it gets to that point. A lot of people were not a fan of that move. I, I was. Based on splits, you want to give your guy the best chance to win and that's what they did. Now the second half of the season, the Braves were 0-3 against the Dodgers in Dodgers Stadium. But both teams scored much fewer runs. This has a lot to do with both teams seriously upgrading their bullpens. There is only 20 total runs scored in this three-game series, with the Braves scoring 8 and the Dodgers scoring 12. Urias pitched 6 innings, gave up 2 earned runs. Walker Bueller pitched 17 innings, gave up 2 earned runs. Charlie Morton pitched 6 innings, gave up 1 run. Max Freed, six innings, two runs, just like he did last night. And Max Scherzer pitched six innings and gave up zero runs. If you want to run the math on that, the Braves scored 3.83 runs per game against the Dodgers, and the Dodgers scored 4.33. But it's going to be drastically different because they trimmed the fat on the bullpen. You're only using three starters versus the five. I mean, for example, the Braves used Drew Smiley one time against the Dodgers, in one of these series, and Drew Smiley gave up five runs in three innings. So that's not going to happen again. So if we look at the playoff starters ERA, the Dodgers have a 2.7 ERA against the Braves, those starters. Whereas the Braves have an ERA against the Dodgers, those three starters are 3.29. But that's factoring in Ian Anderson giving up four runs I don't think that's going to happen again, not in a playoff game. They won't let him get to that point. But the same can be said about when Max Scherzer gave up four runs in six innings. I don't think that's going to happen. So it's going to be a fun matchup just from a starting pitching standpoint. I do believe that all four of these teams are where they're at because their starting pitching has really stepped up in the playoffs. I didn't foresee the Boston Red Sox doing this well because of their starting pitching. Don't get me wrong, they have very good starting pitching, but it's not top tier like some of the other teams that are still there. But their offense has taken off like it hasn't all season almost, it seems like. But back to the Dodgers and Braves for now. One, there are going to be a few keys to this series that I want to point out. You may not have dug deep enough to find this, but fortunately, I... You know, I just had a baby, so I had some time at home. While I was watching the baby, I can pull out my phone, dig into statistics. It's a dream come true. Got a new baby, and I got time at home. So it's cool. But anyways, I started digging more and more into the Dodgers versus Braves and Astros and Red Sox because I love baseball. There's nothing like October baseball. But there's going to be some keys to the Dodgers versus Braves series. The first one is that the Braves and the Dodgers have opposite splits when it comes to home and away. We know if you're a Braves fan, you know that the Braves struggle at Dodger Stadium. It's a small sample size, especially over the past few years. So you can't take too much weight into it, but it's it's definitely something in the back of the Braves' minds. But we look at the home and away records winning percentage, right? Because, again, not all records are the same. 
not all schedules are the same. You're going to hear me say that a million times <laughs> on my soapbox for a second. Why do we talk about that in college football, but we don't talk about that in baseball when it's even more so in baseball because the season's longer. But anyways, so the Dodgers had an insanely good record at home. They had a record of 7-16. That means if they would have played all their games at home, they would have had a record of 116 and 46. They would have won 116 games if they would have played at that same rate. They had an away winning percentage of 593, which was still very good, very very good, but it would have resulted in a 96 and 66 record where their overall record was actually 106. So as you can see, they do not play as well away, which is a slight advantage to the Braves because the Braves have home field advantage because of the rule of wild card teams cannot have home field advantage in the championship series. And just to clear up some debate for the World Series, it's the team with the best record. And the far as I can tell, it's be the reason it's that way for the World Series is because what happens if you get two teams that won the wild card going to the World Series? So to me, that that's why they did that. You can always put the caveat of only the best record if both are wild card teams, but I think initially that's why they did that. All right, so let's look at the Braves, how they do. And then the Dodgers did, just like the Braves, both teams, and you'll see a trend here, got better as the season went along. The Dodgers had a 615 winning percentage and a 704 in the second half. So the, the Dodgers did get better as the season went along. For the Braves, they did the same thing. If you're a Braves fan or a baseball fan that follows teams across the league, you know that the Braves did not get over the 500 mark till late into August. They had a terrible 494 winning percentage for the first half, and if they would have continued to play like that, they would have had an 80 and 82 record. But they improved in the second half. They had a 611 winning percentage in the second half, and had they played at that same rate over the entire year, they would have had a 99 and 63 record. And like I said, the Dodgers had a much better record at home than they did away, but the Braves have a much better record away than at home. So what that means to me is even though they struggled at Dodger Stadium, it was a small sample size, that means that maybe the games at Dodger Stadium are a little bit, maybe a little bit closer than some experts or researchers or whatever you want to call them might think will happen. I'm not saying that the Dodgers don't have the advantage. They most definitely do. But I do think it's interesting to look at this. If the Braves would have played all their games away than at home, based on their winning percentages, what I'm getting at theoretically, they would have won four more games. Which, in the big scope of things, when you're looking at who's the wild card, who's winning the division, whatever, four games can be a big difference. As we know with the Dodgers and Giants, it came down to one game in the division and one run in the NLDS so you know four four wins makes a difference so especially with the Dodgers with their massive win gain of 10 if they were to play all games at home so it's just something interesting to look at the bullpens have both been fantastic so far in the postseason the Braves have yet to give up a run in the bullpen except unless you want to count the two runs that 
Hosker Unoa gave up to the Brewers, but he is traditionally or had been traditionally deployed as a starter this year. They threw him in there. Don't know why they did that. Brewers are terrible at the curveball, excel against the fastball. Oscar Yanoa does not throw a curveball, so not really sure why they threw him out there for that situation, but he gave up two of those, those only two runs that the Braves gave up to the Brewers, and the Braves did not give a run in, up in the bullpen against the Dodgers last night. And the Dodgers, having played two more games than the Braves have, have given up four earned runs from their bullpen, one of which was like the Braves deploying a starter in a bullpen role. Your eyes. So that's really interesting that both bullpens are hot at the right time. Both teams are hot at the right time. It's going to be a fun matchup. The biggest keys for success for these two teams to be successful. As cliche as it sounds for the Dodgers, the Dodgers literally just need to play Dodgers baseball. From an overall standpoint, across the board, they have the advantage on paper they have a better offense. On paper, they have a better pitching staff. On paper, they have better top three and bullpen. The Braves have been pitching better as of late, but that's as of late. On paper, the Dodgers are better, so the Dodgers just need to play Dodgers baseball. And Braves fans, if you hear me, do not take that as a stab at the Braves. That's just the reality of it. The Dodgers are a behemoth of a team, and on paper, they're the better team all around. But there are some keys to the Braves' success as well that could, you know, slay the Giant, as you will. As you can see, they do have a possibility of winning some games. They did win game one against the Dodgers. The keys for the Braves are this. Ian Anderson, he is going to be the key, and they made the right move to start him in game two, and this is why. If you look at his home road splits at home, he has a 1.125 whip, a 2.59 strikeout to walk ratio, and a 70 OPS plus against. OPS plus is much like ERA plus. OPS plus, if a batter has a 100 OPS plus, he is a league average in OPS, basically at creating runs. You're on base plus you're slugging. Your, your main thing that you're trying to do as a batter. While Ian Anderson, is, batters are hitting 30% less against him than league average OPS-wise at home. But away, he's giving up a 97 OPS-plus against. He is 27% worse away than he is at home when it comes to on-base-plus slugging. His whip is .200 points higher, and his strikeout-to-walk ratio is almost half a point lower. So Ian Anderson is going to be the key for the Braves to be successful, he needs to start well. The other key to success is that the Braves excel at hitting four-seam fastballs. Much like the Brewers were terrible at hitting curveballs, the Braves are excellent at hitting four-seam fastballs. In fact, they have a 366 expected weighted on base average against them. Basically, if you look at the peripherals based on how they're hitting the ball, they're expected on base percentage is a 366, which is the fourth best in Major League Baseball against four-seam fastballs. They also hit 107 home runs against four-seam fastballs, which is the second best in all of Major League Baseball. The Dodgers are throwing four-seam fastballs 42% of the time, which is the third highest in MLB. This could be the deciding factor between if the Braves beat the Dodgers. If the Dodgers want to be successful, they need to change up 
their pitch rotation and how much they throw the four-seamer. If the Braves want to win, they need to capitalize on these four-seam fastballs because the Dodgers are going to be throwing a lot of them. So let's move on to the ALCS. This one is, man, it's been mind-blowing already in two games. The Astros came out in the first game, looked like they were the clearly better team, and then the Red Sox came in game two and hit a grand slam in the first two innings and said, nope, we got a chance to beat you too. Just because we're the wild card team doesn't mean we're not going to come in and be a difficult team to beat. The Red Sox also beat the mighty Tampa Bay Devil Rays. So it's, it's well, I guess they're the Rays now, but whatever. I, I like the Devil Rays better. Also, I like their old uniforms. Probably the coolest uniforms ever and the, their old school uniforms. Uh, but anyways, that this this matchup is crazy to me. Uh, one and one so far, so it's a brand new ball game, as they say. But let's take a look at how these teams match up. In the regular season, the Red Sox were 92 and 70, and they got the wild. They played in the wild card game. We all know this. And Houston was 95 and 67, winning their division. Of course, you all probably already know that. But let's look at things that are really interesting. Houston had the second best run differential in the American League, and it was only one run behind the Tampa Bay Devil Race. And a lot of that was because they were scoring runs like crazy. The Astros scored more runs than anyone in the American League. In fact, they scored more runs than anyone in Major League Baseball. They led the league in runs scored. And a lot of that has to do with a lot of the guys that did not perform last year performed this year. Their shortstop, Carlos Correa, had a down year last year. He absolutely did not have a down year this year. Same with Jose Altuve. Altuve has stepped up. Everyone in on their roster has really stepped up. Michael Brantley, who is the ageless wonder, has continued to hit the ball well. Kyle Tucker has finally stepped up to be that dependable guy. And then you've got their first baseman, Yuli Gurriel, who has been steady as well this year. I mean, gosh, a first baseman with a 3.7 wins above replacement. That's solid. That's right behind Freddie Freeman. Uh, he didn't have a ton of power, but he got on base like crazy. 319 batting average and an insanely good on-base percentage of 383. In fact, he led the league in batting average. Batting average is probably the most overrated stat in baseball, but it's still there's still something to be said about it, especially considering he had a solid on-base percentage as well, resulting in a 131 OPS+. plus. So, I mean, if you got a guy like that that's like your fifth or sixth best hitter, uh, you're doing pretty darn good. And the Astros scored more runs than anyone in Major League Baseball and you cannot take that away from them. No matter how easy or difficult their schedule was, they still scored those runs. Now, their division they were playing in had some bad teams with the Angels and the Rangers, but Oakland and Seattle still did really well too. I mean, Seattle was in the thick of it for a wild card game spot until the very end, and Oakland is a very, very underrated team. That's what scares me, is that Houston and Boston both played in very good divisions and they had to play against very good teams and they prevailed. Which, to be fair, I thought the National League East, the reason you only had two teams over 500 is because they were very evenly matched and they were eating each other alive. Whereas 
American League East and American League West, they had they were very top heavy, but the top teams in the league or their division rather were very very good. The Astros pitching has been excellent as well. Only one team in the American League gave up less runs than they did, and that was the Tampa Bay Rays. So that kind of shows you why their run differential was so close to the Rays by only one. And uh, the, the Astros are scary, folks. The Astros are really, really scary. The Red Sox are an example of a team that got hot at the right time. And I don't put a huge or a ton of weight in that, except for the fact, like I said earlier, if you're getting hot means that you're performing well at a certain time. It's not, I guess what I should say is a lot of times when people say teams are getting hot at the right time, they seem to kind of think it's some type of magical luck that that happens. In reality, it's most of the time it's not. It's either they were having bad luck with like their peripherals and stuff. They're hitting the ball real well and they're just hitting it right at people or whatever. And now they're Bad luck is coming back to surface level of what they should actually be doing, or they made improvements. That's typically what happens. It's not really this stroke of good luck, you know. But with that being said, the Red Sox have figured it out in the second half of the season uh, because if you look at their run differential, it's only 80, which is still solid. Don't get me wrong. That's better than most teams in Major League Baseball. Shoot, that would have been second in the National League East, second in the National League Central and third in the National League West and would have been second in the American League West and it would have been second in the American League Central. So, I mean, there was a solid run differential. I can't say that I put a ton of weight in run differential uh, because there's things, I'll give you an example, for, especially in a short season like last year, the run differential did, really didn't mean anything at all. But over 162 games, it can kind of paint a picture and the re what I'm getting at is the Atlanta Braves for the first half of the year, you couldn't really look at their run differential because they had some games where they scored 29 runs against terrible teams like the Pirates, and then they'd face good teams and not score any. And so run differential you got to take with a grain of salt, but over 162 games, it does kind of paint a picture. And especially when you look at things like how many runs did they score and how did they perform against teams above 500 and stuff like that. But the Red Sox did, their one issue was they did give up quite a few runs. They gave up the, they would have been in fourth place in their own division in terms of giving up runs. And what I mean by that is all the other teams, except for the Orioles, gave up less runs than they did. In fact, in the American League, they gave up, or I should say they were in ninth place. That means eight teams gave up less runs than they did in the American League. And offensively, they would have been third in their own division as far as scoring runs. However, for the entire American League, they did score the fourth most amount of runs. One of the biggest things that's in Houston's favor versus Boston is Boston has a losing record against teams with a winning record this year, whereas Houston excelled against them, being 45-32. and 32. So things are not pointing in Boston's favor and you know how I said a good indication of if a team is getting better or not the Red Sox got hot at the right time but it was not for a very extended time in fact 
If you look at the second half of the season, they had a much worse winning percentage. In the first half of the season, they had a 604 winning percentage, which would have given them much more wins than they had. In fact, they would have ended up with 98 wins if they would have played like they did in the first half, whereas the second half, they had not, I mean, it's still decent, but not as good winning percentage of 531, which would have resulted in only winning 86 games which would not even got them to the wild card game if they would have continued to play like they had the second half for an entire season. Another thing that's not going in their favor is, unlike the Braves, their road splits are much worse than their home splits. In fact, there's a huge difference of 74 point difference between percentage-wise between their home record and their away record. They're much, much better at home. And being the wild card team, they don't have the home field advantage. Of course, in a seven-game series, I would say that home field advantage is a little bit overhyped. But if it comes down to game seven, that may matter because the Astros are going to get the final at bat. And the Astros do have more games at home, which means if you do the laws of probability, that means the Astros will win more games. Fortunately for the Red Sox, the Astros are almost the same story. They had almost the exact same first half as the Red Sox did. They just had slightly better second half. Winning, their winning percentage was 563 for the second half, which was much better than the Red Sox. But it is worse in the second half than it was in the first half. So they have not been quite as good. But to be fair, they knew they were going to win their division for a long time. So they were not playing in that playoff mentality, if you will. They were giving guys rest and stuff down the stretch. But I, I, I don't put a ton of weight in that. It's just something that needs to be considered. The reason the Astros had a bad second half, well, not even a bad second half. It was a, it was a decent second half. They went 40-31, and 31, uh, better than most teams in Major League Baseball. But the one area they faltered was not in September. It was in August. They went 14-13 and 13 in August, so barely over 500 in August. That was their issue, but they improved quite a bit in September, going 15 and 12. In the Red Sox, exact same boat. It's bizarre the way these teams, their flow was almost the same. Their bad month was August. They went 12 and 16, and then they improved in September, going 14 and 11. So it's really, really bizarre. Their winning percentages in the month of September are almost identical. With 14 and 11 records and 15 and 12 records in September, it's kind of bizarre. But the one thing that sticks out to me that goes in the Astros' favor is that the Red Sox had a ton of one-run games that they won. Some people like to think that if you win a bunch of one-run games, that, that means you have a solid bullpen. What that tells me is over a long period of time, especially in the playoffs, in high leverage situations like the playoffs, that means that the team kind of got lucky. Because if you have two very good teams facing each other in one-run games, it really could go either way. Over a long period of time, if you were to take the same roster that the Red Sox had and play the same schedule again, the odds are that they would not win as many one-run games as they did especially if all of those games were against a good team like the Astros. The Red Sox had an insane 44 one-run games where they were 26-18. and 18. 
The Astros had four less, where they went 21-19. and The Red Sox also got a bit lucky because with that stupid runner on second stuff for extra inning games, the Red Sox went 10-5, and whereas the Astros went 9-8. and Little things like that, little caveats like that, just aren't going to be the same in the postseason. But let's talk about the keys to success. Boston Red Sox were 57-39 and versus right-handed starting pitchers and 35-31 and against left-handed pitchers. When they face right-handed pitchers, they need to excel. But what that means for the Astros is they need to deploy as many left-handed pitchers as they possibly can if they want to be successful against the Red Sox. And it's almost the exact same story for the Astros. It's really strange how these teams follow each other in these advantages and the flow of their seasons. It really is bizarre. The Astros against left-handed pitchers are 34-28 and and 61-39 and against right-handers. Both have winning records against both-handed pitchers, but both are much better against right-handed pitchers. So the teams need to deploy as many left-handed pitchers as they can while still being having their good pitchers pitch left-handed. Unfortunately for the Red Sox, only one of their top starting pitchers, Eduardo Rodriguez, is a left-handed pitcher. However, I say top, Chris Sale is back. So if Chris Sale can is pitching at the Chris Sale level, he is a left-handed pitcher. So if Eduardo Rodriguez can continue to pitch well and Chris Sale is at full, ready-to-go, playoff-style Chris Sale, they do have a chance because they got two left-handed pitchers going against the Astros to start games. And then a good thing that's for the Red Sox and a bad thing for the Astros that will go in the Red Sox favor is out of their entire roster, the Astros only have three left-handed pitchers on the championship roster and Brooks Raley, Blake Taylor, and Framber Valdez, who was the game one starter. And the Astros won that game, interestingly enough. And so that is going to be, or could be, a deciding factor because the Red Sox seem to feast on right-handed pitchers. Lance McCullers Jr. is not on the roster. Their top guys like Zach Greinke, the Astros, right-handed pitcher, Christian Javier, right-handed pitcher, I mean, uh, Jake Odorizzi, right-handed pitcher, Jose Uquerdi, right-handed pitcher. So the, the Astros are deploying a ton of varieties, both in the bullpen and as starters. So that could go to the Red Sox advantage. And as you saw in game two, they absolutely feasted on Luis Garcia, right-handed pitcher, Jake Odorizzi, right-handed pitcher. You know, nine runs off of those two guys. Right off the bat, no pun intended. So, we've talked about the matchup between the Dodgers and the Braves and the Red Sox and the Astros, and we've talked about some advantages for both teams. So, why don't we move into since this is October and we do the baseball special once a month? I'm going to go ahead and talk about MVP candidates. I know that we touched on that a little bit last month, but the thing is, is a lot can happen in one month. And I believe that some of the MVP candidates have changed, specifically in the National League. Before we move on, we need to realize that MVP is voted on by human beings, 
What that means is everyone has a different opinion on what most valuable player means. And I'm going to give you mine. It's the most valuable player. It's the league most valuable player. It's not the best player on your team. It's not the best player on the best team. It is the player that brought the most value to their league. And what that means is who is the best player, regardless of the team around them. If they were, if you were to put them on another team, they would be just as valuable. Because in baseball, even though it's a team sport, everything that almost everything that you do is not directly impacted by players around you. There is some argument that sure, some players when they're on better teams see different pitches. I get that. But overall, that's not their fault. And so we're looking at their true output. If you were to take the true output they had and put it on a different team, it still would be the exact same true output. Okay? So we're looking at the true output of these players. And one argument that I hear a lot and I just completely disagree with is, well, this player was better down the stretch. So? Let let me give you an example. Uh, Someone talked about, well, you know, Bryce Harper in the last series against the Braves went 0 for 11, so he definitely shouldn't be MVP. Are you kidding me? The Phillies would not have even been in division contention if it wasn't for Bryce Harper. If he wasn't on the team, that series would not have even mattered. You know why? Because he carried the team the few months before that. So let's step, take a step back from baseball, and let's just let me give you a metaphor, right? So let's say you're taking a high school or college course. You can get up to 100 points to get an A+, right? Well, let's say for the first half of the course, you got 50 out of 50 points. And then the second half of the course, you got, let's say, 40 points. So you still ended up with an A. You got 50 in the first half. 40 in the second half you got a 90 you got an A student number 2 got a 44 in the first half and a 44 in the second half they did 4 points better in the second half so yeah down the stretch they did a little bit better but they still only got an 88 therefore they got to be in the class it should be no different in major league baseball because a win is a win. It doesn't matter to now in the playoffs this is different, but in the regular season, it doesn't matter when you got your team got the wins, right? It as we saw with the Astros, they had a better first half than they did in the second half, but they still won their division, right? It doesn't matter when you get the wins, it's that you got the wins. It's the same with player output. It doesn't matter when you got the output, it's that you got the overall output. And so I do not, I do not, and I will never agree with the whole. Well, they were better down the stretch. You got to look at the whole season. It's not the second half MVP. It's not the last season or last series of the season MVP. It's the league MVP for the entire year, and that's what we need to be looking at. And unfortunately, in the end of the season is when a lot of voters are paying the closest attention, which is unfortunate for guys like. Bryce Harper, whose team did not make the playoffs, and people like that. But what's interesting is every MVP candidate, in my opinion, that are true MVP candidates this year are on teams that did not make the playoffs. 
To me, in the National League, there's really only three true candidates for the MVP. Braves fans are not going to like me for saying this. Austin Riley had a fantastic season. The biggest turnaround I've ever seen in my entire life. If you were to take the difference between how he performed last year and put it to this year, let's just use wins for above replacement for example. The difference between last year and this year is close to nine wins above replacement. That's enough to win MVP every single year, you know. Uh, so yeah, if you look at the how much he improved from last year to this year, sure. But when you're looking at the other three guys that had a better season than him, top five, he should get some down votes, no doubt about it. He will get down votes, but he's not going to win MVP. So first, let's look at Fernando Tatis. Okay, he had a very solid season, right? He had a 6.6 .6 wins above replacement. He led the league in home runs with 42. He had 97 RBI. I'm going to list RBI because for some reason voters still look at that. RBI to me, more coincidental than anything else. If you've got a guy like Adam Duvall, whose on-base percentage is below 300, leading the league in RBIs, that tells me that a lot of it is coincidental and not pure skill. Okay? He had, Tatis had a 282 batting average and 364 on-base percentage. A 611 slugging percentage, which comes out to a 975 OPS. And that is good for a 166 OPS plus. That means that a 66% better than league average. He had a 7.3 offensive wins above replacement, negative 0.2 defensive war, and a 5.1 UBR, which is ultimate base running. That factors in all base running outside of stolen bases. If you add stolen bases on top of that, he had 25 stolen bases and a 2.9 weighted stolen base. This is one thing that voters do not look at that drives me insane. Base running. Tatis is the best base runner in Major League Baseball. Second best, Ronald Acuna. Guess who didn't play most of the year? Ronald Acuna. So Fernando Tatis is by and large the best base runner in the league, and he's not going to get love for that. However, that factors into a lot of his wins above replacement, which is why some people look at his numbers and wonder why he has a 6.6, .6, especially with a negative defensive wins above replacement. Next, let's look at Bryce Harper. He had a 5.9 win above replacement, and the thing for him is that he only played 141 games. He played less games than both Juan Soto, Austin Riley, and Fernando Tatis, which to me are the top four guys, and maybe Brian Reynolds too. But wins above replacement is an accumulative stat, which MVP should be about accumulative stats. For example, if a guy goes up and has one at bat, hits a home run, his OPS is going to be through the roof, his batting average, his OBP, his slugging are all going to be over 1,000. So do we do it on rate stats? No, we do it by accumulative stats. Bryce Harper had 35 home runs. He only had 84 RBI, which says guys were not getting on base around him. And he led the league with doubles, with 42 of them. He had a 6.5 offensive wins above replacement and a terrible defense at negative 1.2. He was bad at base running at negative 2.5 UBR. But he did have a positive stolen base of 0.8 weighted stolen bases. And then let's look at Juan Soto. Oh, I forgot to mention, Bryce Harper. That's why I wanted to talk about 
great stats. He did actually lead the league in slugging percentage and OPS, which resulted in leading the league in OPS plus at 179. So from a pure rate standpoint, statistically, Bryce Harper was the best offensively. Not overall, but offensively, he was the best offensive player from a rate standpoint. But again, he only played 141 games, where guys like Austin Riley played 160, so he contributed more. Which is why Austin Riley had more wins above replacement than Bryce Harper. So to me, I would say I personally would vote for Austin Riley over Bryce Harper simply because of the games played, because uh, they're pretty close, pure output. Austin Riley edged him out just a little bit, but from rate standpoint, rate stat standpoint, it'd be hard to vote for Austin Riley over Bryce Harper. And then you got Juan Soto, which people didn't start talking about until September, but it's probably because he had one of the best Septembers I've ever seen. He had a seven wins above replacement season in 151 games, so 10 more games than Bryce Harper, which has played a huge factor. He had 29 home runs, 95 RBI. He led the league in walks, and he led the league in on-base percentage. He had a 6.8 offensive wins above replacement and negative 0.3 defensive war. He had a positive base running, which was better than Bryce Harper, but nowhere near as close as Tatis with a 0.5 UBR, and he was not good at stealing bases at negative 1.9 weighted stolen base. But, like I said... He had led the league in on-base percentage with an insane 465. That means he almost got on base one out of every two times he went up to bat. He had a 313 batting average. His OPS was a 999. So almost 1,000, only 45 points slower than Bryce Harper, and only 4% lower than Bryce Harper with OPS plus with a 175. He was 75% better than league average. He had better uh, base running. He played 10 more games in Bryce Harper, so accumulated more stats. To me, Juan Soto is your National League MVP. He, from an overall game standpoint, he beats him in wins above replacement. He beats him in accumulative stats that matter. Led the league in on-base percentage, only 4% lower in OPS+, plus, yet played 10 more games. Juan Soto uh, did not bring as bad of uh, defense. He had much better defense than Bryce Harper this year. And his base running was better as well. To me, Juan Soto is your National League MVP. Will the voters see it that way? The Nationals were never in it in the playoff hunt. And I hate that voters vote that way, but they do. So, And voters love Tatis. So I don't know. It It's going to be really, really interesting because these three were really close. To me, Juan Soto will win the National League MVP. And I wouldn't be surprised if... if uh, Zach Wheeler, the pitcher, actually takes some votes away from these guys. It is interesting that the Phillies had two MVP candidates on the same team, much like the Angels would have had if Mike Trout would have played, and, uh, you know, they didn't win their division. All right, so let's, I, I, my prediction is that they will give it to Juan Solo just because of the fantastic September he had, and recency bias plays a factor with voting. And I do think that Juan Soto probably won some votes during down the stretch. As much as I hate to say it, that's why. But his the rest of his season was solid too. So I would give it to Juan Soto. Now the big debate is the American League. And many people are upset. They're saying, oh, well, you know, Otani 
but is not the best pitcher, not the best hitter. So, he was the best overall player. It's most valuable player. It's not the mo best offensive player. If that was the case, of course Vlad Jr. would win. But Vlad Jr. is the deserving Hank Aaron Award winner, absolutely. The best offensive player in Major League Baseball, actually. He had the best offensive output of in Major League Baseball. But the thing is, is like I said, it's who brings the most value. And what I like to look at is the wins above replacement is not an end-all, be-all stat by any means. But it factors in more than just offense. It factors in more than just defense. It does factor in defense, offense, and base running, which Otani was much better at than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The one thing that's interesting, though, is with Otani, he didn't really play defense, so you can't factor that in. But he did in a sense because he pitched. But anyways, let's look at some of these statistics. Let's look at Vlad Jr. first. In 161 games, he had 6.8 wins above replacement. He had he just missed the triple crown with 48 home runs, but he did lead the league in runs. He had 111 RBI. He led the league in OBP and slugging percentage and total bases. And to me, total bases is huge. He had a 311 batting average, a 401 OBP, a 601 slugging percentage, which is absolutely insane, by the way. A 1002 OPS and a 169 OPS plus. As you can see, though, that is lower than Juan Soto, and it is lower than Bryce Harper. Now, I would vote Vlad Jr. over Bryce Harper in a, in a heartbeat, uh, just because he accumulated much more stats playing 161 games. But interestingly enough, I'd I, I would love to see if Vlad Jr. and Juan Soto were in the same league. Who would get the most votes? I think Vlad would because he was in the playoff hunt, which I hate to say. And then if you look down the stretch, he performed really well as well. With a 306 batting average of 382 OBP and a 595 slugging percentage. It dipped a little bit, but it still was good down the stretch. His OPS was a 977 down the stretch. But again, 6.8 wins above replacement, played first base, did not add a bunch of defense, and definitely didn't add any base running. He had his D-War, or I guess I should say defensive wins above replacement, was negative 0.7. His UBR, or ultimate base running, was 0.1, which was about league average, and his weighted stolen base was negative 0.3. So let's move on to Otani. Otani had nine wins above replacement, so that's a difference of 2.2. Well, a 2.2 is more than the league average player gets in a season. And I'll give you an example. George Springer had a 2.5 wins above replacement this year. And Jazz Chisholm Jr. had a 2.4. Raymond Laureano had a 2.5. Mark Canna had a 2.5. Miguel Rojas had a 2.5. Michael Brantley had a 2.5. You look at these wins above replacement, and those guys, the difference between Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s true full body of work and Otani's is that of those guys' entire season almost. I mean, 2.2 is a massive difference, and I'll tell you why. 
So, yeah, offensively, Vlad Jr. was better, obviously. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Otani had a zero, sorry, had a 4.9 offensive war. So just from wins above replacement, just from offense, he had a 4.9 to Vlad Jr.'s 6.6. So if you look at offensive war output, the difference is pretty massive, um, even though 4.9 is really impressive. Otani led the league in triples. He had 46 home runs and 26 stolen bases. His slash line was a 257, a 372 OBP, a 592 OPS, and a 965 OPS. Sorry, 592 slugging, 965 OPS. His OPS plus was a 158. Uh, that's 58% better in league average. Whereas Vlad had a 169. So if you look at percentage-wise, the difference between 158 and 169 is 11% offensively. That's pretty big, but if the difference is only 11% offensively, and then you add on top of that 130 innings pitched of 318 ERA ball, which is 141 ERA plus, 41% above league average, when he had 158 strikeouts, sorry, 156 strikeouts to only 44 walks. That's a 3.55 strikeout to walk ratio, which is better than Ian Anderson, by the way, by a full point. And he added 4.1 wins above replacement with just pitching. Then on top of that, you take the fact that he freed up a roster spot because now the Angels could add a whole other roster spot because he's taking up two roster spots with one body. Then, yeah, he wins this thing. He uh, Down the stretch, he was not as good, which is probably going to hurt his voting. He had a 231 batting average, but his on-base percentage was actually better than Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s with a 412. He got on base like crazy, but he didn't hit as many home runs with his slugging percentage being down to 440, where he had an 851 OPS. But he also had four starts, which he went down a little bit at the end there, but he got they he quit pitching because he got injured. Uh, 391 ERA with 29 strikeouts to only five walks. But when you add those two together, the the difference, it's like, yeah, Vlad was better offensively, but only 11% better. And then you add 130 innings pitched with well above average, 41% better than league average pitching on top of that for 131, 130 innings pitched. Yeah, that's the MVP for me. And to me, I hate it for Vlad Jr. Because any other, if he would have been in the National League, he probably would have won MVP. It would have been like literally any other season. That would have been MVP for him, but I'm just being honest, it's Otani. He won MVP. To me, it's not really a debate. I love baseball because you can have this debate because of the human factor. Humans are going to vote, and I cannot wait to find out not just who wins, but the actual vote total. Don't forget that when MVPs are voted for, it's not, hey, this person wins. It's they. whenever you put in your ballot, you put in your top 10 players, and you rank them. 1 through 10, where 1 gets the most points. If you get a first place vote, that gives you 15 points, or 10 points, sorry. And then if you get a 10th place, place vote, that gives you 1 point. And then you add like that. So And then ninth place gets you 2 points, 8th place gets you 3 points, and so forth. And then you add all the points together, and that's how you get the MVP. So I cannot wait to see how the points add up. It's one of my favorite things about the postseason, other than the free agency. And... It's going to be a blast. 
So that's this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to go back and listen to the last Sports Invaders Plus special that we had. I'll be trying to do this once a month to get you your updates on Major League Baseball or just to have a fun MLB chat. It's always fun to talk baseball. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can come back to Sports Invaders Plus and get your podcast wherever you get them. You can also check out my personal podcast, Braves Dugout Podcast, where it's the number one ranked podcast on Good Pods. I'm Good Pods Verified. And... Uh, you know, I just love talking baseball, and if you want to hear it, I'm here here to talk it. So thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next month. Oh, thank you.